Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning, everyone. It's really nice to be able to say hi to some folks here in the sanctuary. Also, good morning to you in the greenhouse and those online. I know that this has felt like a season of Lent for a year. It was about this time last year that while in the midst of the season of Lent, we went into lockdown and many things have changed. And I know that we'll truly never be back to normal, but it is nice to see some normalcy happening to us. And so we're thankful for this season together uh, in person as well as online. I want to uh, begin with just a word of prayer for us as we look at what is a great passage, Jeremiah chapter 31, and an important passage to under, for us to understand our faith and the nature of our faith and our hope to cling to Christ as our Savior. So let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this new day. Your mercies are new every morning that we get to gather, whether it is on a screen or in person. We get to be together as this holy community, the people of God, those whom you are redeeming and making and fashioning into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray in this season of Lent that we are reminded of our need for a Savior and that the answer to our life is to cling to Jesus. And may he find us and we be found in him fully. And we ask this and pray this in his name. Amen. So one of the prevailing themes of scripture or one of the prevailing ways that God is described for us is that he is a covenant-making God. And while for some of us this sounds very theological, um, you know, I would boil it down to this. Do you like it when people keep their promises to you? I do. Uh, I know that uh, I'm sure you appreciate that as well. I had an appointment with Sam Cox a few weeks ago, and I totally forgot, and he texted me at 6.30 a.m. and said, hey, the restaurant's not open. You want to go somewhere else? And I had to embarrassingly text him back and say, oh, Sam, I'm so sorry. I forgot to set my alarm. And just that feeling of letting others down. But the most centering thing that you can do to understand about what it means to have a relationship with God is that you understand this principle. God makes and keeps his promises to us. It's one of the things that we've watched and seen through the season of Lent as we've looked at the Old Testament scriptures. And yet we're also reminded God is the one who keeps his promises, but we are often the ones who break our promises Even in the season of Lent, 40 days of holy pursuit, of turning to God, of practicing spiritual disciplines that require our energy and our effort, most of us blow it. And by the end of Lent, we're on life support with these practices. And it's just a reminder that we are unable fully to keep our promises and our good intentions. And so that's why I like to say I have this love hate relationship with the season of Lent. I love that the season of Lent calls you to repent. I hate that it calls me to repent and to be reminded 
But even still, behind Lent, the God we worship, we know that it is God's promises to us that sustain us. The Bible says clearly, he is a covenant-making God. A few years ago, uh, I did a deep dive study into the nature of covenant, and it was probably one of the best things that I've done as a believer to understand the way God relates to us in his relationship. So we might ask, what is a covenant then? Now, in our society, we're very clear of what a contract is. And a contract is the basis of our society. It's the basis of our relationships. And it works this way. If one agreeing party makes a contract with another party and someone in that relationship, that contract breaks it, then the agreement is broken. It's considered null and void on the spot. And basically the signers of the contract agree as they come together to hold their end of the bargain as long as the other party holds their end of the bargain. And here at Church of the Redeemer, even we just completed and signed papers on a four-year contract in which we purchased this place last Thursday. Ben Lewis, our senior lay leader, and I signed away a lot of money on this place after four years of negotiating and navigating a contract with the previous owners. Since we live in a legally oriented world, one that assures us and reminds us of our rights, most of our practices are based upon contractual thinking. Now you may wonder, how does this work? Well, when you enter a restaurant, you are operating usually under an unwritten contract. And here's the unwritten contract. This person is gonna serve me at my table for my dinner. And if they do a good job, I reward them. And if they do a bad job, I don't reward them. And then I get on my phone and go on an app and then I decry how awful their service was so the whole world can shun them and shame them forever and ever and ever. That's contractual thinking. That's the way our lives are oriented in our society. Even our friendships can operate that way, what we call quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. It's the nature of our human relationships to default to contractual thinking. With the covenant, however, it is much more significant than that. It does sound a little contractual, but it's deeper. It's a bond. It's a significant bond that creates a relationship. It is far more binding than even just my personal feelings. It is legally binding, but it is relationally binding. Covenants in the ancient days, covenants as we understand them through scripture, were made with blood present. That's how serious it is. But it's also incredibly intimate. When you make a covenant, you're saying, I trust the other person. I love the other person. I doubt you've ever made a contract that way. I made a contract with Spectrum a few years ago. They told me they would give me the lowest price of internet for a year. At the end of that year, I was looking for a new partner. I kicked them to the curb and I switched over to AT&T. 
and I'll do the same thing in another year when my AT&T contract expires because I'm interested in a contract relationship not on personal feelings but on services. But you see, our relationship with God is vastly different. The classic covenant that we see between God and his people is expressed through the nature of the relationship of marriage, which is why we heard in the reading today, Jeremiah says about God that he is like a husband to Israel. That's covenantal language. And in covenants, both parties agree to hold up their ends of the agreement, regardless of whether the other party does their part. Covenants are also lifelong in their duration. So covenant then is very hard, I think, to wrap our minds around because we're so contractually based. Yet in the Christian faith, what makes our relationship with God unique is that he uses covenant language to us, not contractual language. And thank goodness that's the case. When God rescues Noah, he makes a covenant promise. When God leads the people out of Egypt, he makes a covenant with them. When King David fulfills the boundaries of the promised land, God tells him, I will make an eternal covenant with you and your offspring will rule on your throne forever. And today we hear of in Jeremiah, God commits to the people a new covenant. So we might need to ask this question, what is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant then? They sound similar, but they also are dissimilar. Well, I would say it this way. One of the tensions that the Christian life presents to us is this idea that at one level, our faith is conditional. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and you are to be faithful to that covenant. That's conditions. On another, God says, I will keep my covenants forevermore and I will redeem you and restore you. So is our faith conditional? Is it earned? Is it something we do? Or is it unconditional? In Genesis chapter 17, in a very stunning theological move, God enacts his covenant with Abram, and he rehearses the covenant ceremony, and he makes sure Abram understands something very profound. In the covenant ceremony, Abram does not participate. Only God did. And in essence, it was God's way of saying, even if you, Abram, break the covenant, I'm the one who gets the curses or the penalties for it. So in the Genesis account and in some other places, it seems that covenant is connected to God's unconditional promises. Yet in Exodus 19, Moses went up to God and the Lord called from him from the mountain and he said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There is that one little word in there, if, if you keep my covenant. So Moses comes down off this mountain, he announces the covenant, and then he sprinkles people with blood to enact the covenant. And it seems in this passage that the covenant is connected to our obedience to it. If we break it, we're cut off. So hopefully, I can create in this moment a little bit of that theological tension. Is our faith connected to our obedience, our ability to keep the covenant, or is our faith connected to God's full, unconditional love and acceptance of it? Is the covenant conditional or is it unconditional? And is the basis of our love relationship with God our performance or his? This is a huge question. And it actually creates in us a paradox. And how you answer this question sets in motion your understanding and your experience of the Christian life. Is it what I do or is it what God is doing in me? Well, some would say, listen, God made a promise and he will never break his promises. He always keeps his end of the bargain, but if we break it, then he's off the hook. And it leaves us in this very uncertain state of performance or legalism. I love you based upon what you do. It's sort of a work relationship. After all, Israel was unfaithful for generations. We heard last Sunday Dan talk about the judgment that came to Israel for their unfaithfulness, that God had appealed to them through prophets, generations of warnings, and yet they remained unfaithful, and God ultimately cut them off and they were exiled. Isn't that conditions? Others would say, now wait a minute, Alan, hold on. God's promises are unconditional. You see, it's grace. None of us can keep this promise. Even God understood this, and he instituted sacrifices for the people to cover their sins, and they were called to repent, and that God forgives us, and he takes us back. Have you not forgotten that great passage on the prodigal son? He will ultimately overlook our unfaithfulness and forgive us. This is a deeply internal struggle. And one perspective leads to a lack of holiness, that I don't have to take God's law and his commands seriously. He'll kind of wink, wink, and pass over. The other one, I think, produces in us a lack of love for God and for our neighbors because we work, so we get what we earn. Is our relationship with God conditional, something we do, or is it unconditional? Well, maybe a good starting point is ask yourself about your relationships with others. Do you find yourselves leaning one side or to the other? Are your relationships conditional? You have friends because they are good to you and you like them 
Or are you unconditional in your approach to relationships? You understand people by nature will let you down and fail you. Your understanding about how God works affects how you live these relationships out with others. If you want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, the prophet says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. Well, does that mean all of the covenant promises that were made beforehand are washed away and there's a new basis of relationship with God? Not necessarily. In the old covenant, there were two parts. There was the law, but also the sacrifices. There was God's expectation, and there were sacrifices provided to cover the sins of the people who failed that law temporarily. The old covenant was partial. It wasn't the full perspective. The apostle Paul writes this in Galatians 3.23 when he says, before the coming of this faith, new covenant, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law, the old covenant, was our guardian, our tutor, until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So when Jeremiah tells us about a new covenant coming, he's not commenting about an abolishment of the old way. He's talking about the fulfillment of the old way in the new covenant mediator. We heard this in Hebrews chapter 5. Last week, Dan spoke to us about the exile to Babylon, that the kingdom of Israel faced. They were faithless to God, so he gave them over to their desires and their heart, and they spent 70 years in exile. Jeremiah is talking about this exile in chapter 31, and he's saying to them, God is coming back to you. That seems to imply his unconditional perspective. You broke the law then why would he come back and restore them if they failed? Because he keeps his promises. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is why the new covenant is new to us. God says, I'm going to give you an ability to keep the very law that you fail to keep. I'm going to give you an inner desire, a changed heart. The new covenant still keeps the law. There is still right and wrong, but the new covenant expresses the fullness of God's love and commitment to us. He says it this way, 
No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, he's up there, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The new covenant brings together the answer to this dilemma is God's activity to us, conditional or unconditional. This is, it's completely exemplified when Jesus sits with his disciples on the night before he's arrested and crucified, and he takes up a cup and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. A new relationship, more binding. Jesus is saying that what he did was bringing the covenant God promised to your ancestors into full fulfillment. How, you might ask. And that's because Jesus obeyed the covenant perfectly. So Jesus has fulfilled the conditions of the old covenant. And he's taken it one step forward with a new covenant by extending to us his unconditional grace found in him. Remember in Genesis chapter 17, which I mentioned, the covenant God made left us out of the penalty. Jesus inaugurates this new covenant on the very night before he's about to be crucified and killed for the penalty of the first covenant. Is the covenant conditional? Yes, it is. But who has fulfilled the covenant? Christ. Is it unconditional? Yes, it is. It comes to the weakest of those who seem far off and unable to live the way we ought to live. How do I understand this? Then you might be thinking, okay, you've presented this dilemma. What's the answer to this dilemma? The cross of Jesus Christ showed us how important the law was. God would not neglect his covenant stipulations, but it also shows us how loving he is, that he is the one who takes the penalty for those covenant restrictions. Possibly my favorite hymn is were you there or or when I survey the wondrous cross from Isaac Watts where he says, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Well, how does this relate to me today? those of us who are filling out our March Madness brackets and worrying about how we pay our rent or our mortgage, how we will finish school. Well, I think it relates two ways for us. If I think my relationship with God is based upon my performance, then I will feel a constant and tremendous source of guilt and shame and uncertainty. I will spend my life wondering, am I right with God? And I will often manifest that behavior in my relationships with others. Or secondly, 
If my relationship with God is just based upon his grace and not my effort, then it is very easy to become apathetic towards God and faith activities. Well, I know he'll forgive me. This is why our life must become a cross-shaped life, a cruciform life is the fancy word. I used to think when I was a younger Christian, if I saw people crossing themselves, that I thought, well, that's just religious posturing. You're just trying to look holy or saintly. But now I understand that my whole life in this life in Christ is to be lived in a cross-shaped manner. The Apostle Paul says, may I never boast in anything but the cross of Jesus. You know, for centuries, churches were built in the shape of a cross, if you looked at them from overhead, to remind the people that the cross is our way of life. The cross is the answer to God's conditions and his unconditional love. This is how it relates to me. When I find myself thinking this way, it's up to me. I look at the cross and I see it was actually really up to Jesus. And when I find myself thinking, you know, God's gracious and he's going to let me slide and no one's perfect and I can cut corners and become self-absorbed, I look at the cross and I'm reminded that his grace was incredibly costly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it best this way. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, he says, it is grace because God did not count his son too dear a price to pay for our life. But he delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. This is why, friends, Jesus is the solution to our dilemma in so many ways and on so many levels. To live the Christian life is to look to him, to turn to him, to cry out to him, to cling to him, the one who has fulfilled the covenant in every way. But I want to take this one step forward so I our faith just this morning doesn't reside in our minds. When God says to us, whenever the covenant is brought up, he says it this way, usually something like this, I will be their God and they will be 
my people. God makes this unbelievable commitment to us, to you and I. When a husband or wife makes a covenant promise, it means they'll never be the same. They're making this promise towards one another and they are fully giving to each other their life for all its ups and downs. God makes this very same kind of promise to us. He really gives himself fully. On the cross, Jesus Christ became ours. And this forces me to turn from performance or apathy in my thinking. If you see that Jesus has died on the cross, you see God really does care about the law. He really does care about sin. But at the same time, when you see the cross, you see there's no place for my self-despair. This past week, I read that the editor of Teen Vogue, which I don't read, and probably don't commit to any teens to read. But this editor had to resign 10 years ago, said some foolish and sensitive things, apologized for him, and was canceled again. She got canceled by the very culture she puts on display every week. I pray that she will have some Christians in her life who will help her understand the nature of God's unconditional forgiveness. Are God's promises to us conditional on performance? Absolutely. That's why Jesus is so precious to us. Are they based upon his grace? Totally, totally unconditional. And the way we live into the new covenant is by coming to Jesus, clinging to him, and trusting in him that he is our promise maker and our promise keeper. It's why we come to the table week after week where God says to us, I really know deep down inside who you are, but you are still welcome.